am Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair and let's begin. Sierra Horton McElroy was raised in Orlando, Florida. She holds a BA from Wheaton College and an MFA from the University of Central Florida. Her work has appeared in AGNI, Bridge 8, Iron Horse Literary Review, The Crab Orchard Review, and Saw Palm, among others. She currently lives in St. Louis with her husband and son. Atomic Family is her debut novel. Welcome, Sierra. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Publishers Weekly gave Atomic Family a starred review mentioning McElroy writes with veracity about the effects of nuclear waste on the land and water and brings to life the strange mix of terror and naivety of the era. The well-known backdrop makes this affecting family drama all the more acute. What was it that drew you to this setting? Well, definitely my family connection to the setting in the era. My father would tell me stories about what it was like to grow up during the Cold War in small town South Carolina. He grew up in Aiken, right near the Savannah River plant, which is fictionalized in my book as the Sterling Creek plant. And his father was an agronomist. So he was a soil scientist who worked in the health physics department of the Savannah River plant. And though he couldn't talk about it, of course, because of the top secret nature of his work, it came out later that a lot of what he was doing was facilitating the disposal, in other words, burial of nuclear waste into the ground. Now, my grandfather died in the 70s, so I never met him. And I think that that also changed the the mood of the stories that I inherited from my father. It felt like the ultimate Southern Gothic setting, this really eerie, unknown, toxic facility that's right outside this cute and charming little Southern town. And that coupled with the child's perspective that my father had about what was happening during the Cold War was just endlessly fascinating to me. So, you know, I always was drawn to historical fiction. That's what I read growing up. I beginning with like American Girl doll looks. And then as my taste evolved, I still loved historical fiction. And this was history that was mine. It was history that was my family's and very connected to people in my life who care deeply about. And I wanted to unravel that and unpack how my family was involved in the Cold War. Now, we talked a little bit before we started recording about my father passed away. He was a nuclear weapons scientist at another plant. And For me, there were so many things that he would never talk about. Like your dad, I grew up during this time. He would not talk about this stuff. And your book gave me a view into that. And it was so Mm -hmm. rewarding. It's tragic in so many ways. You show things so vividly and you really made us feel for each one of these characters. It's not just the mom. It's not just the dad. It's not just the kid. Each one had a vision of what was happening and how it was affecting them and how it was affecting their family. And they each tried to save the family in their own mm-hmm. way. And hats off to you. It is a riveting book. It's got everything. The love between the husband and the wife and the, the parents and the child. When you were showing the son, he developed his own identity. And I think, what was he like? Eight in somewhere mm-hmm. around there. And you see him thinking it's his role to save his family. Last night when I was looking at your website, I noticed you have so much information about this kind of background information. It's clear you did your research, but you also had access to your grandfather's documents. How did you get those? Through Google Scholar, which is amazing. So a lot of these records from the Cold War are declassified now and they're public information if you search for them. And so I had this idea because... 
you know, I'm obviously not a nuclear scientist and it was very intimidating for me to enter into his mind as a fictional character and also portray the plant as accurately as possible Mm -hmm. because we, unlike the wife and son in the book, get to go where they cannot. We get to go to the nuclear plant and see what is really happening. And so I was like, what if I actually reference and use my grandfather's actual declassified reports? And that's exactly what I did. So I just searched his name through public records and found published articles, declassified memos. It is what pieced it together because I began to understand his work was figuring out how is nuclear waste buried And how does that affect groundwater? Is it going to leach into the river? These are really big questions when this is right up against the river that, you know, affects thousands of people and wildlife. Mm -hmm. And so that's where a lot of it began as I began to actually see this is what he was studying. He was doing environmental research at the time. And we know now the catastrophic environmental impact of the Cold Mm -hmm. War. But in the moment, we didn't necessarily know it was going to happen. I truly believe many of them were trying to do their best. So it allowed me like this really unique insight to actually use the primary sources to help build out the character's arc. I'll be looking up George Clink later today, (laughs) falling down that rabbit hole. For each of your main characters, you built like this secretive structure. The husband had his job, had his duty, kind of a good soldier basically to the plant. The wife had her duty to the family. The son had his duty to open a bunker, a, a, um, a fallout shelter. Fallout shelter. Thank mm-hmm. you. Did you outline it? Did you plan it to be this three-way story? So originally it was a collection of short stories about okay. this family, but I like showed them at different parts of their life. So we would follow the father at, during his childhood in the depression, like multiple threads wove through. And I ultimately realized the story I really want to tell is about living and loving in a world of anxiety, like this doomsday atmosphere. What does that do to a family? What does that do to a child's psyche? And when I decided to format it as a novel structurally, I still approached it as short stories. So there are three main POVs, there's three main arcs. And so I had like separate documents for each of them. And this really helped me with pacing and to make sure that each of them had their own format, their own conflict, their own rise and fall. And I think that that really helped speak to the atomic family environment Mm -hmm. in the sixties where they're all very compartmentalized. And this is just the nature of honestly, pre-second wave feminism life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that really affected the way that the family dynamic functioned. And so formatting it in my head while writing as short stories helped me keep them distinct in that three-part structure in a way where they all have their own climax and resolution. Oh boy, don't they? As someone who can write short stories and we can't all write short stories, that teaches you that economy of words. You had great descriptions, but you didn't lose us in the descriptions of where they were going or you know what things looked like. It was just enough to make us want more. And you, you handled that beautifully. This 350,000 acres of Ellington, what sort of planning went into clearing an entire town? It was crazy. And I, I feel like someone else should write a whole novel just about Ellington. Oh, yeah. So the land where the government decided to build this nuclear site was lived in. It was lived in mostly by Black sharecroppers and poor farmers. And it was just a little rural community. 
a lot of things that they were looking for, and when I say they, I mean the Atomic Energy Commission and the you know the DEA, was access to natural water. This is because they would need water resources for cooling towers and basins. They're looking for diverse soil types, things like that, to go into the like ecological nature of what they were looking for. But I think they were also looking for land they could claim pretty easily without a lot of pushback. I don't think we can ignore that this happened in the 50s in the South. And so they claimed this land by eminent domain, and they forced this town of Ellington to move. These people had no warning. They literally had lived there their whole lives. Many of them were born there. They moved graves. They like dug up people. It's horrifying to think about everything that goes into this. And partly what they did was they raised every building. And the reason for that is they didn't want to leave any structure because they believed that a spy could infiltrate the land. I mean, this is a huge plot of land we're talking about and basically camp out there and spy on what's happening. So they got rid of every single building and structure that was there in the town. It was just completely erased. And when I got to visit the nuclear site on one of their Cold War tours, there were just a few things that stuck out to me. Like we were on this random little road moving between the towers and there was just like a sidewalk curb just left in the middle of the woods. Mm. You can see these eerie remnants of a town that once was. And it's just this really haunting reminder because when they built the nuclear plant, all the reactor towers are very far away from each other. I want to say like three to five miles. The reason for that is so that if one is bombed, maybe the others would be intact. And so they had this massive plot of land and it was incredibly spread out. But when you travel between the different places, you can still see the effects of the town. You went on a Cold War tour. Is this plant still operating? They are decommissioned in their okay. like nuclear work. And now they are, to me, ironically, focused on environmental cleanup. And so they do educational and historical tours now for researchers. And I got to go on one. That's awesome. Oh, really- go where your grandfather worked. That's, mm-hmm. see, I mean, I have very little insight. My dad had a few pictures that they took of him, the computer that he worked on, and it was a room. It was like an entire wall, old school, but it was only like the things that were officially photographed. Mm-hmm. that they let him take. There wasn't much. Supposedly they are now removing the warheads been gone for four years. Couldn't see. Like we, I couldn't go into the lab. I really wanted to see the health physics mm-hmm. lab. You know, we could yeah. just drive by the nuclear graveyards where they buried waste. I mean, there was a lot we couldn't really see, but yeah. we could see enough. And just even being able to visualize what it looks like on the outside and what it felt like to like get in your car and drive the five miles to one of the different places around the plant that helped visualize a lot of things for me too. Are they still tracking what's happening to people health-wise, water and things um, like that? Depends on who you mean by they. Plant workers themselves, I think, are doing a lot of the environmental work. They're trying to determine how much radioactivity has leached into the river. And there's been some data on that that does show the effects in the surrounding environs. There have been independent groups, probably similar to your community, that looks at the health effects of individuals who were directly involved. There were stories that arose that people who were in direct contact with nuclear waste, and I say this because those were typically going to be poor Black janitors, you know, who Mm -hmm. in the South were the ones actually touching the materials tended to get cancer in shocking buster cases. And then of course the people who in the the white coats were not. And so there's so much there, especially in this Southern context that really warrants 
whole other books that I did not feel qualified to, to write. Like that wasn't, you know, there's, there's so much to write about this one place, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack still about the effects Mm -hmm. on individual health, on groundwater, on plants and animals, like fish, you know, people who are still subsisting on the local environment. I left Amarillo four years ago and where my dad worked is like, I don't know, 30 miles from there. There were a lot of cancers from people that that work. Yeah. And that's true at, you know, Hanford and Oak Ridge and all of the different Mm -hmm. plants, especially the early ones where we just didn't know enough, I think about protective equipment for people, you know, in these radioactive settings. So yeah, it'll continue to be a thing. I don't think it's talked about enough. Most of Mm -hmm. what I have seen, and this is just anecdotal because I'm not an expert on that particularly, is that it's led by families, family members who say my father, my uncle, my grandfather all died of the same cancer within (laughs) this short amount of time. They all Mm -hmm. worked at this plant. And so those are the types of narratives that come forward and it's people advocating for their own healthcare and justice. This book reminds me, trying to remember Ash Davidson's Damnation about the, Spring. yes, Damnation Spring. Yes. And like you did, where you get to see the individual characters and how they're coping. But the difference was in Atomic Family Insider had the fact it's community that needs this business. Mm-hmm. I'm sure at the Sterling plan, like Pantex, our community loved having Pantex because it employed so many people. Oh, completely. That's huge. And, and not to forget too, the patriotic nature. I think there was this attitude of like, this is what we must suffer because there is something so much bigger at stake, which is communism, which is the red threat. And those things combined, it just kept people quiet. You know, Dean wrestles, he's the father in the book with his ethical dilemma. But a lot of it is like, I'll lose my job. I'll lose everything I have. You know, I'll have no way to provide for my family. These are valid concerns that a father is wrestling with. They're not nothing even though we might look at it like there's a moral issue at stake, but he's like, but this is also very important. But yeah. He's a veteran too. And exactly. as a veteran of a war, he knows some things just have to happen. Exactly. And yeah. It and I think you did a great job of profiling him as a veteran because that really framed his decisions. I think. I think so too. And one of my favorite parts of the book is actually that there are two veterans who have very different opinions on mm-hmm. the nuclear arms race. One who served in the Pacific and the one who served in Europe. And I thought that was also really important. It's just, there is no one veteran experience and opinion on was Hiroshima and Nagasaki's bombings justified and they disagree. And I thought that that was really like psychologically enjoyable to like work through the way that the different characters justify different things. Oh, definitely. This has been breathtaking material. What is next for you? So I just turned in my second novel. Yay! My agents uh, were hoping to be out on submission before my second baby comes. <laughs> we have like things moving while I'm on maternity leave. But yeah, so book number two is a feminist reimagining of the road novel. So it's about Jack Kerouac. I'm thrilled about it. It's completely different than Atomic Family in just about every way, except for it deals with some gender tropes from the sixties. So, you know, I still am attached to some very (laughs) important themes and the way that it affects the world today. But yeah, so that's the book I just completed. And then in the meantime, I am working on my business and starting to think through what my future novel will be, but I think I'll I'll have a little bit of a break in there too. (laughs) Well, and you've got a baby coming, so you know Mm -hmm. that you deserve that break. (laughs) 
Yeah. I think I'm like, you know, do I want to start a novel at seven months pregnant? Maybe not. <laughs> so, you may go back and go, what was I think? You know, you get the baby brain. Yeah. <laughs> that no, light in the. I sit down yeah. to write right now and I'm like, I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> How do you remain objective while writing about something that's so close to you and your family? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, first off, I talked very openly with my father about the desire to write this book. And I felt like because we do have a good relationship, it was really important that he signed off. I mean, I didn't know my grandfather. This is much more personal to him. He was thrilled that I wanted to write the book. But we also talked very much so about the fact that this is fiction, right? Like it is not a biography about him. These characters live in my head, (laughs) even though they were loosely inspired by real people. And that gave me the freedom and I think the objectivity to make the book what it needed to be. Because as far as I know, my grandfather never encountered any dilemma like Dean does. But I used the research to build the type of conflict that would carry the novel forward and explore the themes that I wanted to explore in the work. So that was very important for me, like feeling grounded, feeling like I had permission from my family to really explore this full Mm -hmm. throttle and be able to talk about it in this you know, post-publication process, but then to feel the freedom that it it was mine. You know, this is not strictly a family story. This is a novel. You set the stakes so high and all the podcasts and all the books that tell us you have to give your characters agency and set those stakes. And boy, I don't think they get any higher than what you did. I I mean, down to the child and that just... Tore me apart in the best way, but I'm not going to say anything else about that. Don't. <laughs> I mean, that's effective. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, what do you hope your legacy will be in telling this story? You know, the answer I give to this is different now that I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. When I was first writing the book, I think I was thinking a lot about the environmental angle and propaganda, still very important themes. But now that I have a son who's two years old, I look at this book and think about the ache and the desire to keep your child safe in a world that's not. And I would not have had the words for that until I became a mother. And this is the kind of book that I hope speaks to parents or people who love, you know, especially young children Mm -hmm. in their lives, because it's hard. It is, it is hard to drop your child off at school, even if it's just preschool and be like, Mm -hmm. I hope you're safe today. Like these are realities that parents in our country have to live with. And I can't separate this book from that feeling. And that sometimes all I have is the sense and the belief that we're doing enough because it's really all we have. We, we don't know that we're doing enough. We don't know that our kids will be safe, but we have to believe it anyway. And I see that in the characters, but I also see this desire to keep fighting for a better world. So I think it's both of those. It's, it's learning to live with the fact that our world is imperfect and dangerous um, and we have to exist and let our children exist in it freely, but then also fight for something better for them. Well said. Do you have any advice for new writers? Read a lot. (laughs) Read a lot. There was someone in my MFA program who used to brag that he writes so much he didn't have time to read. And I was like, that's so stupid. That is the exact opposite of what you should do. You know, it's tempting to be like, I put in six hours of writing today, but I didn't read a book all month. Really the best way to learn to write is to read as much as you can and to read widely. And by that, I mean, read outside of your genre. I try to read everything. I read poetry. I read some YA, 
you know, I'm not a poet or a YA novelist, but you learn things from different genres too. And it really broadens your horizons. So that's my biggest piece of advice is read more than you write and then read widely. So what are you reading? I am reading my last innocent year right now. Um, I also just finished Big Swiss, which I highly recommend. It's kind of all over book talk and Instagram right now. And I loved it. And I just picked up a book called Minor Characters. Like you said, read widely. Mm -hmm. And even though you try to read widely, you miss a lot of books. And it seems like every time I talk to authors, there's at least one book that I haven't heard of. So I'm excited to check these out. Yeah. My last innocent year just came out and it's set during the Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal. It's it's interesting. Sierra, thank you so much. I was blessed to have a copy of your book. It was very personal to me and it Mm -hmm. gave me a view into a world that I've always wanted to see into. So thank you. Oh, you you are the perfect reader for this because (laughs) you, you recognize so many things in the book. So I'm so grateful to have readers who also get it and recognize, you know, what it's trying to say. So thank you as well. And thank you for having me on the show. To learn more, visit sierramcelroy.com. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.